Hello, I'm Vicky Kavanagh and you're listening to the Books That Made Me podcast. My guest this week is radio host and creator of Ireland's largest book club, Rick O'Shea. In this episode, we discuss his love of science fiction, brilliant Irish books, and how Richard Dawkins shattered any lingering beliefs he had about the presence of a god. Tell me, how, give me the whole, the whole brief on this. Yeah, give me everything. So this podcast is just all about is created for and for bibliophiles and people who love books. So, of course, you being the founder of the Ricochet Book Club. Five years yesterday. Five years? Yeah. I forgot. I forgot it was the birthday yesterday until somebody pointed out to me today and they went, you know, it was the... And I'd mentioned it last week. Somebody had said to me last week, oh, next Monday it's five years. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, so it is. It's fine. And I'd done a thing on it. Uh, completely forgot yesterday. That years. doesn't... No, it can't be because I remember joining it when it just first started. Oh, yep. dear God, time is going by far too quickly. Yep. <laughs> and um, it's incredible now because what are the numbers at currently for it's a little over 20 26 and a half thousand somewhere in that sort of ballpark God, it's unreal isn't it i stopped counting i couldn't yeah. i used to when it was you know five thousand and then six thousand and seven thousand i'd make a big deal every time a thousand came along i just got to the point where i can't do this for the yeah. rest of my life i have to stop counting the numbers yeah you really do I, 25 i made a big deal out of 25 of course because like that's so now serious. it's every five so now that, that seems like me being lazy but it's every five it, it is kind of um, right to you otherwise you go insane watching the numbers Go. But it's a, you know, it's a total accident. It's all utter nonsense. There was no plan to this. It just fell together like a, you know, like a bizarre project that no one had ever, you know, asked me to do. And I just went, yeah, I'll throw that thing together and see what happens. What was and the kind of the kind of thinking behind it for you? Um, is this the sort of thing you want to record, or is this? Oh yeah, no, go for it. No, go... We, it's all just about books. So Are you recording about... already? Yeah. Oh, fantastic! Well, in which oh, case, I always just always... chuck it on. Oh well, that's fine. In which case, then that's fine. Then I can do whatever I want. Exactly. And uh, the idea was that in and around 2014, I'd started doing book stuff publicly for the first time. I'd always read um, from the time I was yay high, mm. um, but I'd never been a reviewer. I had never been somebody who talked about books publicly. I'd never been on book panels. Mm. I'd never done any of that. And in 20, whatever, twenty third, I think it was 2014, mm. I decided that I was going to read 100 books in a year. Okay. And the 100 books in a year thing was because I kept going into bookshops and every time I did, I would end up seeing giant shelves of books that were brand new mm. and they were ones that I really wanted to read. Yeah. And I wasn't making headway. Yeah. Because I was reading 20 books a year, maybe somewhere, if on a good year, I was, I was reading that much. And I thought, right, okay, if you knuckle down, yeah. you'll be able to do this for the year. And if you don't, at least it'll be an interesting experiment. Yeah. Um, I then said it out loud publicly because I knew that if I didn't, mm. possibly a month or six weeks or three months into it, I was going to go, I've changed my mind. Yeah, you have to have that accountability. S- absolutely. And the best way to do that is have other people do it for you. <laughs> So uh, I did that. And the more I started talking about books publicly, when I did the 100 books thing at the very beginning of the year, like the Indo got in contact with me and asked Mm -hmm. me, would I write an article about it? So I ended up then writing about stuff and talking about it on the radio. And then the more that I did, the more people started talking about it and the more I was being asked to do book things. And then people started the whole, you know, you should start a book club. Mm -hmm. It was around about that time that quote, celebrity book clubs, end quote, were becoming a thing. Yeah. Um, Florence Welsh had started hers. Mm. It was just before Reese Witherspoon starting hers. But the idea was, I, I think people wanted some way of engaging with me about books as yeah. well. Uh, and I said, okay, 
I'll do this thing. I'm not going to do it in the real world because I don't really like people very much. I'm not great with people. And I certainly don't want to meet people once a month and talk about stuff over a glass of wine. That's not me. <laughs> it's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I love people, but I yeah. just don't love people. Um, so absolutely. And the internet is a great way to do that. So I, uh, I just set up a Facebook group because it seemed like I could have done it a lot of ways. The Facebook group thing worked well because it meant I did, it didn't have to come from the top down. Mm -hmm. So instead of being if it had been a blog and I would have been mm -hmm. posting about stuff and people would have said stuff to each other in the comments, that's very that's a very top down yeah. way of organizing it. With the Facebook group, it's kind of a democracy, which allows everybody equal weight in terms of anybody can post about anything they want to at any stage. Mm -hmm. It also means you don't have to be there very often because the thing ticks over by itself, which like is quite nice. Like having a group of children and they can keep each other entertained. You yeah. don't always have to be there. Every now and then you come in and reinforce the rules. It's <laughs> grand. And it started off, and I know I've said this loads of times before, I thought we'll have a few hundred people. They'll, we'll all chat about books. And won't that be fantastic? Yeah. And then it was fine for the first year or so. And then it developed a kind of critical momentum because obviously the more I was talking about books publicly, either online or on radio, yeah the more people started joining because they heard about it. They're like, even now, anytime I go on and do, if I'm on the Sean O'Rourke show talking about books, uh, you get a huge bump of people yeah. over the following month who will who will go, oh, I heard him on the Sean O'Rourke show. It'll be a month later. And you go, well, what are you doing the last four weeks? You <laughs> okay, fair enough, you're here now. Um, and it just developed critical momentum all of its own. And as to where that ends up, I don't know. I well, genuinely don't know. It's brilliant where it is at the moment, speaking as a, a member of the community and getting numerous amounts of book recommendations or even just doing the, the slide creeping at times when you don't participate in the conversations. But I'm enjoying looking at other people's views on the books. It's It's been a wonderful way to connect to other readers. You're entirely normal, though. I think sometimes people think that, that, that because there are a relatively small number of people mm -hmm. who are quite vocal about books in the book club, that they're the only people who are paying attention. Yeah. But if you look at the numbers and the stats behind it, you know, there are, out of the whatever, 26 odd thousand people that we have, there's about 19,000 of those see a post every seven days, roughly. So people are there and watching mm -hmm. and seeing. They're just like everything else in life. Mm -hmm. We're just creeping at everybody yeah. else's stuff Casual and we're, we're spying other people's business. Mm -hmm. And the book club is no different. Oh, well, I, I do like that because it, it allows you to, to feel like you're interacting with a wider circle, but not actually because I find it personally exhausting sometimes when I get into social media conversations. I'm like to reply again to because people expect you to respond yeah mm. i know i've been there yeah so i just do my old casual creeping and i'm happy with that but talking now about your book journey pre book club and then a little bit after can you by the sounds of things you you always loved reading then it's weird. I did an event in Easton's last Saturday night. Easton's and O'Connell Street were celebrating. This wasn't a public event, so that's why you didn't see it anywhere. But they were celebrating the refurb of the shop. Yeah. It was 100 years. Yeah. And I, I kind of mentioned it on, on social. Yeah, I saw you. Did you get to sign? I got, I got to sign the Easton's oh. wall, one of, one of the little slats that they have for authors, which was, which really was great. Amazing. That was a big deal. Um, but it was 100 years from the time the shop had reopened after it had been destroyed in the Easter Rising. Okay, yeah. Um, even then I was having a conversation with, with um, the, the guys, the general manager there with John and he'd said to me that it was one of the quickest shops to reopen in O'Connell Street even though it took the bones of three years for the, yeah. for the shop to reopen because at the time there wasn't a lot of money going around. They got some mm. compensation from the English government at the mm. time obviously because they'd been bombed with a gunboat. Yeah. Um, the store had reopened in 1919 so they asked me to come in only because... Um, John and a lot of the Easons people since I started working with them um, the year before last they're fully aware of my history with Easons when I was a kid 
pretty much every Saturday for an enormous chunk of my childhood, I would be brought into um, Henry Street by my grandparents. And then I would be walked up Henry Street and I was allowed to go into Easton's on O'Connell Street and buy pretty much anything I wanted. And that's my childhood. That was every Saturday I was in. I bought comics, I bought books, I bought stationery. I occasionally would buy toys in the very top floor when yeah. I used to have a toy shop there. Uh, so that was my Saturday. So I was brought in. Yeah, and they they asked me to just tell that story at the at the thing the other night. That's so beautiful. So though. from the time I was yay yeah. high, books were always oh part of my life. Your grandparents are legends. They are very much so. So, I did. Sorry, that's just amazing. I'm just thinking of you as a, as a child going in and and that magic and wonder when you get to go into a bookshop like that and go, okay, you can have anything you want. Hugely, and I mean, I I grew up very, very, very working class. Um, my my I you know, was born in social housing. Mm. And uh, when we grew up, my dad was unemployed for most of the 1980s. But my grandparents ran a little company, a little scaffolding company. So they always had a few quid. Yeah. And they had the ability to to bring myself and my brother out and to go, here you go, you, you want to buy a book? Yeah, sure, buy a book, off you go. That was always the ability yeah. to, to do that. And it was never seen as being an extravagance. It was, it was, it was this is a perfectly legitimate way to spend yeah. our money this week. Oh, it's a necessity, yeah. I really think. Hugely. It. <laughs> it's the same as food and shelter. So can you remember then either the, the first book you bought or a book that really got you excited when you bought it when you were younger? I don't know because I've thought about this and you've, yeah. you, you sent me this list, list of books for me to think about mm-hmm. in advance. And for a lot of them, it's harder than, than you think it might oh, no, be. Yeah. I'm absolutely 100% sure that an enormous chunk of that reading when I was a kid and when I was those ages was... Uh, either Enid Blyton or Alfred Hitchcock based. So it was Famous Five. Okay. It was the both the original Enid Blyton ones and then those terrible ones that were <laughs> written by, there was a French author who wrote a load of them oh, under the Enid Blyton name yeah. and they were all a bit poor. Yeah, they were uh, Secret Sevens, um, the Three Investigators book that came out under the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Okay. Name Hitchcock would write a little brief intro at the beginning, it's like "Hello, everybody," and <laughs> now the three investigators will be. Of course, they were all you know ghost written by whoever it was yeah. who'd written all of these books. But he gave the seal of approval. Kind, kind of, yeah. Not that I really knew who Alfred Hitchcock was when I was six. It was just a. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're very cool. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, uh, the Hardy Boys, anything that came in sequence, and that was because you know YA didn't exist mm. in those days, so there were children's books, yeah. and and that was what I read. Having said that. There is always that moment of, I think, the first time when I read something that would be considered an adult book, so yeah. something that wasn't a kid's book. Yeah. Um, I was in school. I was in, I think, third class, I'm fairly sure. So that would have made me probably five, six, seven, nine, ten, mm. somewhere in that sort of ballpark. And that year we were in a prefab in the school. So there were two classes in a prefab. And at the back of... Uh, our prefab, there was a little bookshelf with probably maybe 30 books yeah. on, on the back of it. And every now and then we'd be allowed to go pick whatever we wanted off the bookshelf and bring it back. I came at one stage with a yellow collection of short stories because I read the first two, two, three paragraphs of the story and I really liked it. And it was Arthur C. Clarke's The Other Side of the Sky, okay. um, which is a collection of his science fiction short stories. And I was whatever, eight, nine years old. Yeah. I read those and then I read everything Arthur mm-hmm. Clarke ever wrote so that was my start of my journey into adult fiction mm. and in science fiction in particular um i still have enormous holes in my science fiction knowledge which for somebody like me who, who claims he's a science fiction reader <laughs> is really unsettling to me like last weekend i just bought an isaac asimov book for the first time okay but 
when it came to Clark, I started with him. I loved the kind of hard science fiction he wrote. Mm. He was one of those writers who was always 100% about the, the science that went into his own science fiction. Okay. So he made sure that things worked in the way that they would if you were, for instance, in space or if you were yeah. in zero gravity or if you were. So... It's following a train of logic there. In, enormously yeah. so. And it's one of those things that really irritates me when I see sci-fi movies these mm. days and when something happens or there's a, a spacecraft that's making an enormous noise in deep space and I go, it won't make noise in deep space. It's a vacuum. There's no noise there. And Clark was always very big into the hard science of that. Um, and then later on, I got into other kind of hard science science fiction writers, people like John Wyndham. Mm. I loved Day of the Triffids. It was one of my favorite books ever. Um, so that, as, as an adult reader, that was my starting point when I was yeah. kind of nine, ten, whatever, I think. Mm. Or maybe there's just bits missing that I don't remember. I don't know. That's all right. We just have massive realms of our childhood that we blank out. It's completely fine. Uh, is that okay? I mean, it, I mean that, that happens to everybody, absolutely. doesn't it? It's not just me. No, I mean, I've got like a few, you know, you've got your memories here. Of like I, So I always have a vivid memory of, and nobody believes I actually have this memory. I broke my arm before I was one year old. Oh, wow. And I have a memory of being in the hospital. But, you know, according to science and stuff, you don't actually form memories before mm. you're three. So it could be an implanted thing. But then you get to a certain age and there's just a big old gap of a few years until you kind of Until something again. important so happens. Yeah. yeah. People who can remember otherwise are freaks. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I hope they're making a lot of money out of it in, in you know, casinos in Las Vegas. But, you know, yeah. they're, they're best of luck to them. Yeah, they're definitely the kind of people who are card sharks and yeah, yeah winning the house. So what was it about science fiction that really appealed to you? I don't know. It's really weird because it's obviously mm. it's influenced everything I've read then for the rest of my life. I yeah. seek out the different, the weird, the strange, the unusual. Um... I don't know. The first story that I read is called The Nine Billion Names of God. Um, and it's a wonderful, incredibly short Clark short story, which I'm going to ruin for everybody who hasn't read it. But that's... that's spoiler, spoiler alert. Alert. It was written in the 50s. Sorry, you're going to have to just suck this one up. Um, if you haven't read it yet. Exactly. There's a series of scientists who are coming down a hill somewhere in it's Nepal or Tibet. Mm. And there have been a Buddhist monastery that they've been installing the first uh, one of the first ranges of supercomputers in this is in the 50s. And the conversation is going on amongst them as to why Buddhist monks would want a supercomputer. Um, some of the guys who've just been looking at and installing it and that the, the computer guys are explaining to them, well, they bought this office because apparently in their subsection of Buddhism, um, they count the nine billion names of God. That is one of their mantras. So they continue to count all of these names of God. And apparently, you know, if they manage to count all the nine billion names of God, then God will turn up and that will be the, the end of the world. But that's what they do. That's their sect. This is their okay. thing. And they're having this conversation as they're going all the way down and, and they've just finished installing the supercomputer and they're leaving and they're going and heading towards the airport. And at the end of it, I haven't read it in years, but the, the line at the very end of the story is somewhere along the lines of they're talking about, well, what would happen if, you know, the computer, is it supposed to count all the, 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 the you know, the names of God? And the computer guy says, well, yeah, of course it is. But, you know, and the other guy says, aren't they going to be really unhappy then when, you know, the universe doesn't end? And he's going to go, well, we're, we're going to be long gone at that point. We've got their money. We've just left. <laughs> and the final line is, and slowly above them, one by one, the stars started winking out. Oh. And that's the end of the story. And I don't know if I'd never read that story, would I have developed a lifelong compulsion for science fiction? Clark was like that. He wrote those kind of Twilight Zone stories when he was writing his own science fiction. So I love the Twilight Zone as well. Yeah. Stories that have that moment at the end where everything goes, huh? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I sought the different. I sought the weird. I sought the unusual. Maybe it's because, you know, I grew up with a very normal, oh, yeah. real, everyday um, working class life in a place where we didn't have a lot of money 
and in a place where everything was normal. I'd, 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 you know, I'd, I'd, I was on a plane for the first time when I was 19. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a lot of exotic and yeah. science fiction gave me a lot of exotic. And it was at a point as well and at a time when science fiction was becoming huge in cinema as well yeah. because I was four when Star Wars came out. I don't yeah. think I saw Star Wars, but I saw Empire Strikes Back in 1980. I was seven yeah. when Empire Strikes Back came out. And so there was a huge run mm. of superhero, uh, Superman, the, the Christopher Reeve Superman movies were happening at the time. There was a huge run of that. There was lots of science fiction happening. So it became a kind of exciting, cool thing to do. And books were a logical extension of that for me. I completely get that. As someone who also is from a working class background, reading is just such a portal of taking you outside of your, your surroundings and to another world, but also allowing you to imagine and to dream and expand and it's one of the best things I think you can ever give a child because it doesn't matter how little money you have, you can even go to a library. You know, if you can't afford to buy books and one of my favourite memories is being brought to the library and being instructed, here's a card, you can now take them. How many can I take? Well, as many as, many as, as the library like. let, yeah. let you, you know, and that just being amazing and wonderful so there's an element though as well if I wasn't a sporty kid either so for you know for most of the kids I knew you know mm. you, you you were good at football or you were good at GAA or you were I was terrible at all of those things I was a little fat kid I was I was terrible I was enthusiastic but I just was no good at any of this kind of stuff so I had to find the things I was interested in and yeah. and reading was one of them and then kind of the very early days of computers mm. became my other thing as well. So games that took, you know, an hour to load the second level of the game because <laughs> yeah. it was on a cassette, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> so that be those days became my things. That was pretty cool. So then I'm going to ask you if there was a book that you ever remember reading that taught you about friendship or family or that you found kind of reflected those dynamics really well. I, it, it's weird because I've 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 taken this as a very broad brief. Oh yeah, go so for it. It's extremely broad. The, more of a guideline. The one that I the, the the one that I thought about, and for some of the 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 ones I've picked, they're obviously ones from very very early on in my reading life, and some of them are, are far more recent than that. The one I'm going to pick for that is James Plunkett's Trumpet City. Um, which up until a point a few years ago was my favorite Irish book of all mm -hmm. time. Now. There's been a lot of brilliant Irish books over the space of the last five years. A lot. It's probably <laughs> happened about 10 times since then. Um, Strumpet City used to be my favourite Irish book. Um, I read an old tattered secondhand copy of it. I'm damned if I can remember when that happened. I think it was in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah. Um, it really interested me because it was set at a point in Dublin life that I'd been interested in the history of. It was set in and around the lockout. It was set again with an incredibly working class cast of people. Mm. I'd never seen the TV version. I was too young, I think, to have ever seen it on yeah. TV the first time around it came out. Um, I was fully aware, but not of all of the detail that my mum's side of my family had grown up in tenements. My mum had actually grown up in a tenement okay. and only left it in the late 1950s. Okay. Um, so this was a reflection of the life that, you know, m my mum had grown up yeah. in and all of the people around her yeah. had all grown up in. And when you read Strumpet City, it is such a broad, sweeping tale of the nature of the stratification of class society in Ireland at the time. Everybody from those people who were living in the most abject poverty, Rashers being the one who's obviously yeah. below the level of even everyone else. He's the one who's mm -hmm. just allowed to sleep out in the, in, in the basement. Mm -hmm. And I think that taught me an awful lot about family, um, right the way to, you know, obviously the, the, the priest who's in that process of being in uh, an inner city parish, but mm. fully aspires to be with people in Dunleary and going out into yeah. houses where, you know, the harpsichord is being played mm. and, and, and all that. So I think that illustrated both the nature of, of how families operated 
in my own family's mm. past. And I think that was what hooked that for me. Uh, eventually, a few years later, many years later, I was um, I was allowed onto the stage of the Abbey in Dublin. Um, they did a Plunkett play called The Risen People, but three years ago, four years ago now, you might remember Panty did The Noble Call at the end yes, of it, the one yeah. that ended up being filmed mm-hmm. and ended up going global. That was part of a series of noble calls that were done on stage. So every night they would have some, usually randomer, come up yeah. and, and give some form of brief speech yeah. as a reflection to the play that they'd just seen. Okay. I was asked to go up and do one of them uh, one night. My usual immediate reaction to being asked to do terrifying things is, sure, what's the worst thing that can happen? And my, my wife says this to me. She's like, you've got to stop saying yes to things you are entirely unqualified to do. But it never stops me. And so stand on the Abbey stage and 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 reflect on the play. Just think, fine, because I'd seen the risen people earlier in the run, yeah. and I really liked it. And it's set in the same part of the world. It's set at the same time. Mm. Um, it's it's a, it's a it's it's a reflection of all those characters that exist in in, in Strumpet City. And so I, I got to sit down and talk to my mum at the time about how she grew up, where she grew up, the generation of the family before her. This is a conversation I'd never had with my own mother. Yeah. Uh, and and things like you know, how many people were living in the rooms that you guys were in? And okay, mm-hmm. one one lady apparently had real luxury because there was only seven people living in the room where they were living and everybody had outdoor toilets. And so I got to have a conversation about this and the nature of, you know, move yourself, you know, a generation up and then all of a sudden here I am standing on the stage of the National Theatre talking yeah. about the nature of all of this. So Strumpet City holds a very important place in my heart because it kind of leads through all of those things. And my parents were in the in the audience at the Abbey that night. Oh. It's the only time they've ever been in the Abbey. But <laughs> they they were there that night to see me do that on stage. I think they enjoyed the play as well. I think. I think. I Not definitely sure. think you were probably the highlight. They didn't go back, that. but I think I think they enjoyed that night. That's incredible though, and that they got to to be there and to see you do that as well. Must have been really special. As to whether I was any good or not, I don't know, but <laughs> I'm sure you were, and I'm sure your wife's completely wrong that you're underqualified for all these things absolutely not oh no she knows she knows reality she <laughs> understands that, that that you could say to me you know do you fancy attempting to balance the books of the imf and i'd go sure yeah. I mean, what's the worst that can happen well, like, there's nothing like your other half for doing that though is there the, 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 you know being realistic about these things yeah my um and i absolutely love him to bits but my partner Stuart, he has this com- complete conviction that um he could you know cook a six course tasting meal if he had to once he was given the recipes. Now, in all our years of being together, I've gotten three meals off him in rotation and they're very simple. One involves eggs. Just It's just an omelette. Okay. okay. But still, he is convinced. I like that. I go, no, you, you couldn't. You absolutely couldn't. He's like, oh, God, what are you talking about? All I use the recipe, the ingredients, I could do it. It'd be fine. I'd be like, you have no fucking clue. It's something to do with masculinity and overarching confidence. I don't know what it is. I don't... Either that or I've just always had the personality type where I've never really wanted anybody to stop me from doing something. So even if I don't really want to do it, I'm still going to say yeah, yes to it. You're still going to give it a bash. What about then a book that broke your heart? And this could either be, you know, it had an unsatisfactory ending for you or a character died or just kind of sometimes when you're feeling melancholy and you read a book about the human condition and you just feel devastated, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on endings that I hate because we could be here all afternoon. Oh, no, give me one. I, Come on, give me one. No, because I'm, 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 I'm always loath to, <laughs> to to go to books and go, what? <laughs> what did you, that makes no sense. Um, no, I, I'll give you the, the weird thing about, and I had to think about this while I was in the, in the process of, of just jotting down a couple of notes mm-hmm. on, on, on this. I, I'm not that person who cries very often when I read books. Okay. I do. Um, in fact, I did with the 
book that I'm just reading at the moment, which is a biography. And there were a couple of sections in it where I got very emotional because mm. it's very well put together. And I can't tell you what it is because, and I'm not joking, mm. I've, I've, I've had to sign an NDA to read this book. Oh, wow. So I can't even tell you the name of this book. Okay, um, afterwards then when it's come out, you'll definitely I will be rattling to... on about this book when yeah. it comes out because I liked it very much. Brilliant. Um, but... So it doesn't happen to me very often that I do. And certainly I think when I was younger, it didn't happen mm. very often. I think the older I get, the more often it starts to happen. Mm. And I think now that I'm 46 and now that I've you know been through a few things, mm. I think it makes it much easier for characters to get their hooks into me. I think I've always had that ability to keep fictional characters at arm's length because mm. there's always a part of me somewhere that's looking at the artifice and going, I'm fully aware that there is an author attempting to manipulate me by creating a character yeah. that is just about to do this. Now, the, the exception to that is is, is always like biography and, and mm. nonfiction where you realise people have been through absolutely yeah. terrible things. Yeah. And I do remember... You know, Schindler's List is a good example yeah. for something like that. When I read Schindler's Ark, that you, there's a, mm. sections of that you just have to put the book down and walk away. Yeah. But um, when it comes to nonfiction, I was thinking about the last kind of maybe three or four years and stuff that I'd read that I kind of was devastated at the end. And there were, there were, um, were there, no, there's, there's one I'm, I'm going to talk about later mm. on. It's Anthony Durr's um, All the Light We Cannot See. Yes. And oh, I, I I read it at the time because people had been raving about yeah. it. It's It falls into that broad category of historical fiction, mm. i.e. anything that's not set in the modern day, yeah. which I've had a real problem with over a very long time. And I'm bashing it out on myself because some of the best things I've read in the last few years have been things mm. that are set prior to right now. <laughs> um, so... When I read, and particularly World War Two books, I, I, I'm I'm not one of those guys who yeah. reads World War Two histories. And there's I'm, a whole like huge thing you could just never go outside that genre. I mean, yeah, there's so much in there, and I'm just not that guy. Yeah. I've read a few things, and and outside of that, I, and I know people whose mm. sole reading diet is nonfiction that's you know solely yeah. set in and around conflict and war. And if that's what makes you happy, then then okay, yeah. And but you know, if that's your thing, that's your thing. Although I, we cannot see is 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 great in that with the way it interweaves the two stories of the two main characters in it, both coming from these vastly different backgrounds. And then by the time you get to the end of it, when they have both encountered each other, and mm. I wanted to go to San Malo, which is where, where, yeah. the, where the last sections of the book happen. Um, we almost did. We almost, the two of us almost read the book and went, right, we're booking San Malo next oh, wow. year. We're going there. Until we realised it was probably, it's quite expensive to get there. It's quite fiddly <laughs> yeah. to get there. And they don't really have hotels there either. Yeah, it's not exactly an easy job. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and I definitely remember at the time, because I was reviewing books mm. at the time, so it's very easy to go back and read your own reviews on your own website and yeah. look at stuff and go, oh, I really was broken up by that quite yeah. a lot. I think my wife had said that it kind of ruined books for her for a while afterwards, and I mm. felt kind of the same way. So that would very much fall into that category. There are moments every now and then in stuff that I read, not very often, and I don't know if that makes me, I don't know what that makes me. I just think it's, I just think I very easily because I read so much and mm. a lot of it is for work. Yeah. I find it hard. I find it easy rather to to keep my arm between me and, yeah. and the other things that are going on. One of the other, as I said, the rare examples are things that happen in real life. Sinead Gleeson's Constellations. Mm. There is a, an essay in the centre called Our Mutual Friend. Oh my God. In which she talks about herself and her husband mm. met and I'm not going to ruin that for anybody who has not read it, no, but I, I remember reading it, going into the end of it and going, oh, Jesus, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it does happen every now and then. 
not very often it takes a lot yeah that book though is absolutely stunning and i keep pressing my copy into people's hands going like you have to read this because i know if they read it they're going to go then and buy their own copy yeah because you'll want to reread it but it's just i i had the hard part of that of knowing full well that it was coming out and sinead and our friends Mm And it's that thing of when there's somebody you know and you really like is bringing out something that like, you, you're kind of going, oh, God, please, please, God, let it be good. Please, yeah. God. And, and when you then end up reading it and you go, it's not just good. Mm. It's good enough that I'm going to spend a long time talking about, talking about yeah. this and putting in the hands of other people. Yeah. The relief on that is is just oh, It is fantastic. because reading is such a subjective thing. And just because you're friends with somebody doesn't automatically mean you're going to enjoy their work because what you enjoy to read and what maybe they felt they needed to write could be two vastly different things. Yeah. And also, so I think it's it's extremely difficult to do the kind of writing that Sinead did in that book of the essays about herself, but then tying it back to much broader, wider things. Yep. And it's a rare talent to be able to do that. I think it would have been e- easy to have written nonfiction essays about what she was talking mm. about, but to write it with the elegance that mm. she did and to write it with the artistry that she did it becomes something yeah. else they're not just non-fiction essays mm. about what she's dealing with in each of them each of them becomes a kind of little bird by itself that that it, it doesn't feel like yeah. non-fiction it feels like something that's between non-fiction and fiction yeah it, it is i'm sure there's a term for that i uh, someone's bound to you know send I'm you an email sure have, but it is fantastic and, and like you i don't really cry at books and i could not remember the last time I cried until I read Sinead Leeson's yeah. book. So that's that's a testament to her. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> um, moving on then nicely to what about a book have you ever read that made you know yourself a little better? Yeah, this was this was this was easier. Um, hey. I in only in terms of I'm very. I'm fully aware that I'm a very unformed thing. I, I'm not one of these people that has a very rigid sense of their own boundaries. Okay. So I, I'm I'm not a person who knows, well, I'm this, 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 mm. and this, and no further shall I go. I'm one of those people who comes across stuff and goes, oh, wow, I was wrong about all that. Okay. Yeah. And so I find it quite easy to, even at this stage, I find it quite easy to, to, to find myself changed by something I've read. Now, usually it's nonfiction, admittedly. I went through my furious political reading phase about, I was kind of in my late 20s um, and I started off by reading um, uh, like Noam Chomsky and I started off by reading a lot of furious left-wing contemporary political Mm. thought and I was reading John Pilger and a lot of his Mm. political essays um, and I started viewing the world in a completely different way than the way I'd viewed it prior to that. I was reading Naomi Klein um, and... So there was a lot of times when things changed for me there, but recently, actually it's not that recently, geez, it's, it's seven years ago now at this stage, I read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Oh, yeah. I was always, I was brought up like pretty much all of us. Mm-hmm. I was brought up in a Catholic house. I went to a Christian brother's school. I did my uh, communion and my confirmation and I was dragged to mass every week by my mother who in subsequent years we've had conversations and she didn't believe in any of that but she felt like she had to drag us there because it was a because you had (laughs) to because that was what you do um but from very 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 early on when I started to think for myself when I was a teenager I was fairly sure that all of this was nonsense um I certainly from a very early age didn't believe in the catholic church Mm. And I took issue with it because it and I disagreed about pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, but that was, that was my, my position was still, and it's that position that so many people have, is that I still thought that I believe in some kind of 
spirituality. Yeah. Uh, or I was one of those people who would say, I don't believe in the church for a moment, but you know, there might be some sort of higher power. Yeah. And that was where I left it. Mm. And like everybody uh, else, what is it? Prayers, the last refuge of the scoundrel. Mm-hmm. I, I would find myself praying furiously when I thought that, you know, if there's even the slightest chance that there's work. a deity that it might work. My, mm-hmm. my, my first son, when he was born, um, my then wife went through a very rough pregnancy mm-hmm. and particularly his birth was very rough. And when he came out, he was purple and he wasn't breathing. And we had about two minutes where we weren't 100% sure whether or not he was going to yeah. make it. And I, I may have prayed more furiously in those two minutes than yeah. I've done at any point in my in my life. So I was always willing to do that. And then, so I would have described myself as agnostic mm-hmm. and certainly somebody who had no participation in the, in yeah. the church pretty much. Uh, then I read, I read the God Delusion when I was on my way to my, on my way to my honeymoon in 2012. I was flying to America. I brought the book with me. My now wife uh, is a lifelong rabid atheist and has been so <laughs> forever. And she didn't, no, she didn't put it in my hands. It wasn't her idea. Yeah. It, it was, it, I just never read it. And I was, mm. I was making my way through things I should have read. And I came out of the God delusion going, yep, that's it. I'm done. I'm absolutely 100% an atheist for the rest of my life. Oh my God, how could I possibly even have been holding any kind of doubt? And I know there are people who find Dawkins intolerable. Mm. And I know there are people who find him preachy and people who find him, um, that they can't deal with him. But if you read the book, and actually he has a really interesting new book coming out um, in the next couple of months called... So I brought my notebook with oh, me. His new it. one is called... Because I find my brain gets worse the older and older oh, again. I start you've, forgetting things. You've met your pal here. I like don't remember anything unless It's I called... On the 19th of September, he's a new book coming out called Outgrowing God, which mm-hmm. essentially is the God Delusion Redux. It's a smaller version that tells you pretty much the same thing. So okay. for those people who might think the God Delusion is a big chunky read, yeah. same thing. Um and I, I, he just disestablishes the concept of there being any such thing as a deity so effectively in the space of that book. By the time I finished it, I was like, okay, yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm done oh, now. Wow. So it entirely altered the nature of that part of my life and yeah. has done ever since. That's incredible. It's for one book to do it. It's, yeah. and then I started reading, you know, I started reading Christopher Hitchens after that. And yeah. then I, so I, you know, I, I delved in after that and yeah. it just all reinforced what I, what I believe. I actually, because I haven't read The God Delusion, I really want to because like that would be very similar to yourself and kind of going, there's something there and it's only in the darkest moments of your life that I even consider praying and then the rest of the time I'm like, no, I just, this doesn't work for me. So I'm definitely going to give that a read. I I think it was, it's those sections where he talks about, there's two things, one of which is where he talks about the nature of how the Bible is put together Mm. and who actually wrote all of these books and when they were written and chronologically when they were written and all of the books that were left out and some of the stuff that that was said in the books that were left out. Entirely so. And there are books of the Bible left, right and centre that were simply ignored because they didn't fit the narrative. Um, And the more of the history of it you read, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a hard science guy. Mm. I believe in things I can see and things mm. that can be proven and things that, you know, you can have equations for. Mm. And the, so the more I read of it, the more I was immediately convinced afterwards that I that I, I, I was on one side of the line yeah. now and that was never going to change. It's a strange one being, doing what I do for a living because anytime you're a public figure of any kind and mm. you talk about being an atheist mm. people see that as being an attack on their own belief in yeah. their own god or their own religion mm. so it's led to a few hairy moments down the years and particularly if you ever talk about it on social media i mean you should never talk about anything on social media <laughs> obviously just, just don't talk on social media ever. you should just stalk <laughs> but yeah 
But um, so it's led to quite a few of those um, over the years. And it's yeah. been it's it's been interesting. But uh, yeah, that, that one definitely altered who I was as a person. It is amazing how defensive people get, even when you're not speaking about their decisions. Like we're at the at the moment discussing whether or not to have the baby baptized when it comes along. And I'm Ooh. very yeah, exactly right. Welcome to this hornet's nest. How's that one going for oh, you? Like brilliantly. Well, what we've currently where it's at is that I really don't want to. I felt very passionate on it. And then, of course, uh, as I'm quickly learning when you're parenting, you don't get the full decision on it. Like you have to reach a compromise because mm-hmm. it has to be what you both believe. So how I've left it is uh, the child can get baptized if you are making a commitment that you are going to be an active and participating member of the church. I'm just not interested in baptizing a child and then you not bring them up in that faith so if you feel that strongly about it you can go to mass with them you can teach every them single every week. single i Sunday, like the cut of your gym right yeah okay basically i'm going my issue is like you know this a la carte thing and you know go for, yeah i'm sorry i'm eating cake while you're talking because i've literally this is the first time i've stopped talking so I've, i'm going to have some cake offended while you're doing if this. you yeah, don't eat fantastic. the cake Thank you know you. Mm. Um, yeah, because my, my issue with the whole thing is, you know, if you're going, religion is a serious thing. And if you're, you're bringing them into this, that is commitment. And it is a long commitment until the child can reach an age that they make decisions for themselves. So the way I see it is going absolutely fine. If it means that much to you, fine. I don't believe in it. It doesn't mean anything to me, but you are going to be bringing them to church. You are going to be asking, answering their questions. You're going to be really instructing them in the ways of this. So currently it's, um, He's mulling it over. He's, he's I think that's probably sensible. Yeah. yeah I, 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 think, I think you've played an interesting hand of cards there. <laughs> the reverse Dawkinsism in the book is, and he talks about it in The God Delusion is, and it was always one of those things my parents said to me as well about how, well, you know, we made sure that you were, you had your communion and your, your confirmation, and then you could make up your own mind when you were older. Yeah. Dawkins' point is, well, you can do the exactly same thing by not doing any of that. Yeah. That's and then the kid is still going to make its mind up when it's older as to whether or not it wants to participate in organized religion. Like, so, because the way I saw it was, well, let's you raise them with a moral and ethical code, obviously in a way to live. But then when they reach a certain age, I was going to go, here's all the religions, here's here's Judaism, here's Muslimism, here's Christianity, here's Protestant. Like, do any of them appeal to you? They don't have to, but in, and let them make up their mind in that way. But because they're going to make up their own mind one oh, way yeah. or the other. Absolutely, and it's what I find so interesting though is that having the conversations there and obviously we're telling people and different things like, like that and uh people really take like a judgment on their own decision so when i was speaking about this very thing with someone who's had their children baptized but then never goes to church mm. and i was like just personally for me this is how i feel and this is how i see it and i wouldn't be comfortable with that because i know we we won't bring them to the church every weekend oh but and the, the, the defensiveness and the, and the anger immediately comes straight away and you're going, this is not a criticism of your decision making. I, I can only talk about for my little piece of the world and what I see. But it's still such a contentious issue of that when, you know, because when people ask me, why wouldn't you want to? I go, why would I? We're, as I keep saying, we're far from practicing Catholics. We've been living in sin for how many years? <laughs> we, we, I'm pregnant outside of marriage and we go to church maybe like once a year or Christmas. Yeah, God wouldn't like you for that one. Like, yeah. God is not. Or any of that. Any of that. And like, God is not digging me in general for how I feel about lots of different things. Like I voted yes in the eighth referendum. So there's just. He slash she would also not like you for that one. Yeah. Yeah. There's just. Except that you're going to hell and yeah, just move I'm on. I'm fine with that. I'm completely fine with going to hell. But um, it is. But it is the it's the way the question is framed. Is well, why wouldn't you yeah. want 
to have your child participate yeah. in A, B or C. Whereas in fact, the question should be, well, well why are well, you doing this? You? Not yeah. why are you not doing it? Where do your beliefs align with this institution? You know, what what do you agree on? Or what are the things that speak to you? Because like for me, I look at it and go, there, there's nothing with them. I agree. We don't have the same viewpoints on pretty much anything at and all. don't get me started on people who literally never, ever, ever go to mass, but use the big pretty building for their mm. wedding day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm the same. I got married in a gallery. It was much oh, nicer. I'd say that was amazing. It was fantastic. It was great. I would love that. I would literally, our, one of our friends there a few years ago and got married and um, they did it in Fumbly Stables. Very nice. Which is really nice to decorate themselves. Uh, one of their friends sang an acoustic version of Love on Top while she walked up the aisle and everyone drank a beer during the ceremony and it was pretty slamming. Yeah. Like that to me felt more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Reflective of them as a couple. And of their relationship than if they'd gone yeah. into a church and done. I think there's an enormous generational shift that is happening. And maybe I'm conscious that this is because obviously I live in Dublin and maybe that's mm. maybe it is entirely different elsewhere in the country. But out of all of the people that I'm aware of who've gotten married over the last year, two years, three years, four years, and even the two weddings I'm going to over the next two years, they're, none of them are happening in churches. That's they're all happening elsewhere. Yeah, I would, I would love to see that continue. Wow, this took a severe left hand turn. This is great. This has nothing to do with books. Let's keep going. And I'm eating cake at the same time. Let's sort out all the world's problems. This is great. <laughs> um, I'm going to then ask you, and I don't know if this is applicable or not, but was there a book that you ever read during kind of moment of, of grief or loss in your life that kind of really helped you or really spoke to you? Ooh, you didn't ask me that one in advance. I would have <gasps> to have thought about that one. Okay. Um in terms of using a book for comfort, I don't know. I think mm. that's something I do all the time, though. Yeah, I think when you're having, maybe comfort's the wrong word. I'm lucky enough to not have gone through an enormous amount of grief in my life. I'm lucky enough that both my parents are still alive. I'm lucky enough that I have three healthy children. Mm. Um, I went through the breakup of a marriage, but that was, that's probably the toughest thing yeah. I've ever gone through in terms of that. And I think actually I did read an enormous amount in the kind of in the yeah. aftermath after that, in the month or two months or three months after that. I think constantly, whenever I find myself having had a day in work, um, or whenever you've just had one of those days where you've gotten involved in a row on the internet with somebody <laughs> over something and you're going, Oh my god, just <laughs> that the easiest thing to do is go home leave everything aside, make a pot of coffee. What are you reading right now? I'm mm. going to jump into that. And I'm in an alternate universe. Yeah. So it's the antidote to everything for me. Um, you know, frequently we've we've gone away on holidays and we're not doing it this year, but we've gone away on holidays and, and you know, you just go away for two weeks somewhere and you go and sit in a house yeah. somewhere yeah. and you bring nine books with yeah. you. I've done that one and I've rarely found anything so... It, it writes me with the world. Yeah, you feel rejuvenated. Because I, I stay away from the internet, mm. social media, news, anything. I just ignore everything. Mm. And, you know, all we do throughout the course of the day is you get up, you make yourself breakfast, mm. you open all the doors and windows, you sit and read, you make yourself some lunch. Yeah. And then, you know, so, the, so three different kinds of baguette throughout the course of the day, <laughs> wherever it is you are. And then, you know, a little bit after lunchtime, you kind of, you know, you might have a glass of wine and that yeah. might continue through the rest of the evening. And you're still reading mm. and then you read some more. And by the end of two weeks, you've come across eight, nine books, maybe more. And you come back feeling like a different human being. Yeah. It's really it's do. it's quite a quite a, 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 a centering thing. I know that might sound pretentious, but no. in terms of putting you back into the center of where your world is, it's one of those things. 
Oh, you just did one of those holidays not that long ago, and I read John Carson's The Firestarters on it. Oh, yeah. It was so good, because I kept it for so long, going, I, you know, I knew this holiday was coming up, and I wanted to be able to read it in those big, long stretches mm. of time that you just don't get anywhere else. And you do, you come back feeling like a new person with a new perspective, and you can kind of come back to normal life and all the things competing for your attention again because you've yep. had a little reset. I think t two things happened with, with the Firestarters. My wife had the same experience mm. with that in that she was reading it in shorter bursts and wasn't getting into it. And she she said, fine, yeah. this Sunday, I'm just going to spend mm. three hours reading into it. And then she did. And it washes over yeah. you after a while. Um, Firestarters is one of the best books I've read in years. There yeah. are chunks of it that you could read out loud. Yeah. Um, as a speech, it's one of the most beautifully written Irish books and I don't know how long. And you've interviewed Jan, but, but meeting Jan herself, I like to think she is so utterly unaware of the absolute brilliance of what it is she has he done. Um, and that there is now an audience who's sitting there going, OK, what's next? Come on, yeah. next, give me something else. Give me whatever it may be. She, she's actually amazing. Like it's And it's always so wonderful when you get to read writers who are just as good as their books yeah. it's, it's such a brilliant thing, I think if people ever get the chance to see her do do oh, public do events it. Do it. I saw her in Listowel this year I just sat in the audience and yeah. watched her and John Boyne do, do an event in Listowel I would have loved to see that it, it's, was it was amazing was because she started to unpick the whole idea of being a Northern Irish author mm. not from our tradition somebody who lives in East mm. Belfast and somebody who yet has found it almost, as she said herself, almost impossible to get noticed in the UK in terms of the yeah. book and her writing. But here, there's been an enormous amount of conversation around the book. Yeah. And, and so she's, she said she found it really weird. And she's now finding herself feeling far closer to feeling her Irishness because of the way the book has been reacted yeah. to here. Or even I saw her do an event with um, Emily Pine. I don't make it sound, sound like I stalk John Carson around. I don't. <laughs> we, we saw her do an event in Dublin with Emily Pine. Um, who also you should see if you ever get the chance to, oh, to see I, it in the I actually, and I, I really wanted to go see her talkie book fest and I remember something came up and I couldn't go, but yeah. Um, and, and the event that she did with, with Emily, she, she had these conversations about the nature of those of us, again, who grew up in a certain working mm. class way and whose parents only ever wanted the best for us and therefore they wanted us to go to university and they wanted us to do, yeah. to go and see the world yeah. and revisit the world. But then all of a sudden you find potentially there's this schism between you and your parents because your life experiences are all so radically yeah. different. She said herself about going home and, and, you know, you can't really then go and, well, you can, but, you know, you only find yourself sitting around the table, you know, what are you going to do? Talk about the Late Late Show. Um, well, because you, your parents wanted you to have this and you got this, yeah. but it has made you a person for whom there is a gap between you and them. Look, sorry, she's utterly brilliant that's and really well well though. worth your time. Like, that's actually... Her insights are astonishing. Oh my God. Okay, yeah. No, I need to, I need to do that. Bring me one moment. It's just very dark. Fantastic. Please do, because I'm going to have more of this. I'll do. Turn on the lights. It's the only <clears> thing in the apartment. It gets very dark in here. Um, okay then, so... What I'm going to ask you next is about, and it, if it applies, is there a book that you read again and again that you kind of come back to and pick up a different different points and you just enjoy going through it again? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take your time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For this one with the show notes, I'll have to put the, I'll put the brownie recipe. At this, at this point <laughs> here. Um, the honest answer to that is no, there isn't. Okay. That's um, all right. I know people have favorite books that they will find themselves going back to and rereading over and over and over again. I haven't for such a long time. Mm. And it's because of that compulsion of there are so many brilliant yeah, things in the world okay. that I would like to read. Mm -hmm. Now, either 
books that I see in bookstores and I even I'm looking at your bookshelves right here. You can see me, I'm doing it in the glances in between the conversation and I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I've I never do the read exact that. same thing when I go into people's houses. Yeah, yeah, and that's a perfectly normal human thing to do. Um, so there's that. And then because of the nature of the job these days, I get book posts almost every day of the week. Yeah. So there's, there's there's piles of stuff come into the office out of which, you know, I can't bring all of them home. So it's only those things that come home with those things yeah. I think I'm going to read. Um, might might be read shelf, like might shelves plural. There's about fifty books on <laughs> oh, the TBR, wow. and that's including stuff that's not out till next year, which is sitting on the right hand side. Yeah, I I I read these days partially for events that I do. So yeah. I have seven events in October and November coming up, out oh, of which wow. I've got to read a bunch of things for that. I read for the Eason's Must Read yeah. list that I do with um, Sinead Moriarty. So I've just finished the reading for the autumn list mm. and I've made the choices for the autumn list now. So a lot of my reading these mm. days is, is work. It has to be done. Yeah. It's enjoyable. Let's not call it work. I know, but, but there's still, there's a deadline or an end goal and objective. To hugely. It. And I find myself not being able to say no to things. Mm. So um, <laughs> as we've discussed before, so as a result of which I almost never reread things ever. Yeah. Really, I, I just don't. I aspire to and I sometimes bring stuff out of older shelves and stick them there and go, you know what? I haven't read Yeah. Carowacks on the road since I was 24. I'm going to reread that again. I did that two years ago. It's still sitting there. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> One so, day. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe if, you know, something terrible happens and I break both of my legs in an accident and I have to sit at home for seven weeks and all I can do is read all day, that might be the thing. But let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, let's let's pray those are not the circumstances yeah. that arises under. Um, and then as we're, we're coming to the end, um, and this could be quite a significant list now, depending, but what are the next book or books you, you plan on reading? Well, as you talk to me here and now, um, I'm going on holidays on Friday, but mm -hmm. I'm finishing on Friday and I'm not back in work for four weeks. So I'm going to be away for almost all of that. But it's not one of those holidays where I'm going to be away and reading, reading huge amounts. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not bringing away a big chunk of books with me. I think... If I manage to read three really decent books over the space of the next few weeks and that'll be on flights and that'll be on yeah. train journeys, yeah. um, I'll probably have done quite well. Um, you asked me to think about this. The problem being, I, I, I still have to go home and do the formal, I'm making a pile and this is yeah, what's going to come that's with what me. That's what we're going. However, um, I thought what I'm going to do for this one is I'm not going to read anything for work, obviously. Yeah. So this is just going to be stuff for fun, stuff for me. Good call. Um I have Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, which I bought in uh, I bought in Strand Books in New York last year and I've really wanted to read for quite some time. It's mm. a nonfiction book of hers. So I think that's coming with me. That'd be cool. Um, I, I've been wanting to read Chi Jin Lu's The Three Body Problem, which mm. is one of the major uh, works of science fiction in the last 10 years. Um, he's a Chinese author and I've been threatening to read that for a really long time. That's probably going in the pile. Um, Rob Hart's The Warehouse is the one I might read for the crack. It's not mm -hmm. out until next month. It got sent to me a while ago. I just read the spiel and I really yeah. like the idea behind it. And the same goes for um, Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror, which came in, which is a series of essays. Uh, but, but having said that, all that yeah. could change by tomorrow. I have the new Salman Rushdie book sitting at home oh, as well, nice. which technically may or may not be work, but I really like Salman yeah. Rushdie and I read all of his stuff, so therefore that might end up in the pile. The fun pile. And tonight is the night. So tonight, <gasps> in theory, I'm going home to make to make the little pile. Crunch time. And some of that will depend on what my wife is bringing with her as well. So she'll bring three, I'll bring three, and there may you be a small amount of crossover, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, don't know. And then by the time mm -hmm. I get back at the beginning of September, it's back to work reading again. 
Well, whatever it is, I'm I'm sure. Well, I hope that you'll be sharing what you think. You about will find out about everything. Good, you will because I always enjoy that. Um, Rick, thank you so very very much for doing the podcast. My pleasure. And um, this is the books that made me podcast over and out. <laughs>